Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Today's guest became highly recommended, and thanks to Sarah Williams for the hookup, we got her. So she grew up playing for Pac-Man, Defensa, and Side. She won an 18U Provincial Championship and was an OVA All-Star. No surprise there. She was recruited to play for Penn State, where she went to the NCAA Final Four and is a Big Ten champion. And right after graduation, she started a pro career in Puerto Rico. So please welcome to the show, Tori Gurel. Tori, thanks for doing this. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. So this is exciting. We've got a lot to cover, and I think people who know you well will know this, but just so all our listeners are aware, uh, you come from a pretty sporty family where your parents were always supportive and watching you, and your dad's actually a CFL Hall of Famer. So when you were growing up, were sports just a normal thing where you were always an active kid with your family? Definitely. They started me in soccer, and then I didn't like running so much, so (laughs) I wanted to switch. Well, I actually became a goalie first, and then my goal in mind for when I was older, which was hilarious, but since my dad played 19 years in the CFL, I wanted to be the first female kicker in the CFL, Um, but clearly my goals changed just a little bit, and I ended up switching to volleyball in the sixth grade, and I loved it ever since, and my parents were extremely supportive in any choice that I made, and you know, I tried to do art at one point, and I think they steered me away from that just because I wasn't very good at it, (laughs) but everything else, they've been pretty supportive. Did you actually get a chance to play football? I know it was when you were growing up, it maybe wasn't as accessible as it is now, but did you ever get to to play on like a rep football team or a school team? Uh, No, I didn't. I think maybe when I still lived back in Calgary, I did like an after school program for like a couple weeks of like flag football, but my dad didn't want me to play football as I was, you know, I'm like, I'm his little girl. So <laughs> he's just, he didn't want me to get injured or anything. And there was no other girls. And most of the boys that did play in this after school league were like four years older than me. And I was like, definitely out of my league there. So I didn't really play football as much as I would have loved to. I mean, of course he taught us like me and my sister how to throw a football around in the backyard and stuff. And we'd go to the park and whatnot, but I never actually got the chance to play any football. Nice. And you mentioned you, you spent some time in Calgary, but when you moved to Ontario, looks like you were in a pretty good volleyball hotbed because you got a chance to play for Pac-Man, Defensa, and Side. So when you started playing, were you into OVA club right away? Did you play for a house league? Like, what made you get hooked on volleyball? So when we still lived actually in Calgary, my sister played volleyball at, in middle school and high school. And she took me to a park across the street and was like, just hit the ball up as high as you can in the air. I'm going to chase it down and try to like pass it back to you. And I was like, okay, I was (laughs) nine at the time. And so just absolutely awful. But, um, so my sister was really the one who got me into it. And she said that I would never play volleyball just because of how bad I was that one time at the park. And so when I moved to Ontario, I was looking for like a fresh new start and I, joined soccer and I wasn't really enjoying it. And so I decided that I would try out for the volleyball team. And in sixth grade, everybody made the team. There was 24 of us. None of us got cut from one team. And that was just at my middle school, Pilgrim Wood. Terrible team. I think we lost every game. And then I was still playing soccer quite a bit. And one of the other parents on another team obviously could tell that my dad was my dad because I was almost six foot at 12 years old and my dad is six, eight big guy. And so they walked up to him and they're like, does your daughter play volleyball? And my dad was like, no, but she can. (laughs) And, uh, after the game, my dad asked me if I wanted to go to a volleyball camp, which was, um, with Pac-Man. And so I went to that 
And I came home and I was like, that's it. I'm doing volleyball. My dad was like, you went for four days. And I was like, I don't care. I'm switching to volleyball. And so that parent luckily was the coach of the team um, for my 13-year year. And I made the team and we drove, me and two of my best friends, drove to Pac-Man every couple days and really enjoyed it. And I stuck with it for quite a while. <laughs> now, now I have to ask, sorry if this is just offside, but with you being six foot as, you know, as young as you were, were you the tall lanky kid or were you pretty coordinated because you, you know, come from a professional family of athletes? I would love to say that I was coordinated. I definitely thought it was coordinated. But looking back at pictures, I don't think I was very coordinated. I was definitely lanky, but I would love to say I was athletic, but I'm not <laughs> sure if that's made up in my head or if it's just my parents telling me that I was great. But I'm sure like my friends can attest that I was pretty lanky and gangly and not very athletic back then. And what uh, what prompted the change to defensive? So you had an opportunity to start with Pac-Man, involved a little bit of travel, I'm guessing, but you played... Uh, I guess the the middle parts of your club career with Defensa and, and Rob Fryerly and, and the club there is pretty famous for developing athletes for the post secondary level. So was that a change that you had in mind that you wanted to play at university, or was it just closer to home or a different opportunity? You know, I had a very interesting. I don't want to say like a falling out with Pac Man, but I just didn't agree with some of the girls, and we just didn't get along. And I thought. You know, maybe it's time for me to change clubs. It's pretty normal for people to change clubs. And my mom was always very active online looking for different places. And I think, like, a, an ad came up on, like, Facebook or something for Defensa. I don't even know. Or if she was just, like, researching different teams. I actually trained with another club that summer after I was with Pac-Man. I trained with the Halton Hurricanes just for their beach program. So I was working for their, like, they had, like, a at this old sports bar they had like a like three or four courts and I was refereeing there like at night just like in their like little house league and so I trained with them all summer and they were talking about defense of this new up-and-coming club and I was like well why do I not just try out like a bunch of people have been talking about it and I know that there were so many girls committed to NCAA teams and I was like there's no harm in trying out for another place and I tried out for quite a few clubs after my 14-year year, going into my 15-year year. But I just knew that Defensa was, like, such an amazing club, and I had heard so many great things, and I was like, well, this is definitely a goal that I want to play for Defensa. So Nice, and I think it was Sarah. She mentioned she had saw Autumn Bailey play at maybe Provincials or Nationals. Was there anything outside, like, the Facebook ad and just word of mouth, or did you know some players who were a little bit older than you that you kind of wanted to aspire to be at their level? Back then, like, be, like I didn't know anything about Defensa just besides, like, the girls who were a lot older um, that were already committed to NCAA teams. And then when I got to my first tryout, there was, like, the 17U or 18U tryouts on the court next to us. And I remember watching Autumn Bailey, Alyssa Fitterer, like, just these amazing girls that went to, like, you know, top universities in the States. And I was like, if I make this team, I'm sold. This is it. This is the place for me. <laughs> nice, nice. And without getting us into trouble with Mr. Fernley, what would you say they do well in the gym that they are developing athletes? Because 
Uh, pr pretty intense guy, knows his stuff. So what makes it special when nobody's watching and you're just at practice? How are so many athletes developing there? I mean, they just instill like a, such a mental toughness in you that you want to train to be the best. And like practices are mentally and physically draining. And I think that was the best way to me for me to prepare to go to Penn State was like the mental draining. Like it was just, we would talk so much about like eye sequencing and what we're seeing the other team do. And it's not just what's happening on your side of the court that you can physically control, but it's like you're trying to prepare for what's happening on the other side. And I think that was the best way that Rob and Kevin, um, the two coaches that I had there, really trained us um, to be the best that we can. And, and also they had like a great, this is like when they were, you know, I was around when they were starting and they brought in Reed Hall and he would work out with us during practices. And I didn't know him, any other people that were doing that. And I had never worked out before. Um, and we'd be lifting like 40 pound dumbbells, like lunging in between sets. And we would do a lot of, I don't want to call them punishments, but like we would, there'd be repercussions for like losing a drill. And that was like the worst. You would try your hardest not to lose a drill, especially if you're me who hates doing any sort of, you know, physical lifting or anything. So I didn't want to have to do lunges across the gym, you know, I just, so I wanted to win every drill. And I think that was the best thing that they have there is like the winning aspect and that mental mindset and that mental toughness. Looking at what OVA clubs are doing and your generation was a big part of this as well of going to tournaments kind of all over uh, not only Canada, but the U S was that kind of your first introduction to recruiting or when did you start to look at, obviously you had the goal to play in university, but when did you start like identifying schools or maybe getting talked to by coaches? So I didn't start getting talked to by coaches until my 15 year year. Um, but the way that I was brought up, my family always kind of talked about it. And I have a sister who's four years older than me. And so she was looking at universities around that time that I was like starting to play volleyball. And so I always kind of knew that I wanted to go to a school with some good volleyball. And so when I started playing volleyball, I was just, I thought I was the greatest thing that walks the earth. And so I told my dad, I was like, I want to go to the best school for women's volleyball. And of course, at the time he had no idea who that was. So he just went on Google and typed in who was the, like who's the best women's volleyball team and Penn State came up because I think that was their third year in a row that they had won the national championship. And so I just was like, all right, that's it. I'm going to Penn State. And so for those couple of years where I was being recruited, I kept my options open because I hadn't heard from Penn State, but I always knew I wanted to go there. So I think it's like I started talking to teams when I was 15. Yeah, I think like, when I was 15, turning 16 and going to those U S tournaments definitely gave a lot of exposure, especially like to the, for the Northeastern teams. Like, I mean, Toronto is so ridiculously close to the border. And so we got to go to a lot of tournaments and that's where I started seeing coaches and receiving letters and emails and whatnot. 
And when we spoke to Sarah Williams, people can check out our archives if they haven't heard that episode. She mentioned the Leaside team came together, and I think from the outside, a lot of people thought it was a super club, but she had mentioned a, a big goal of it was people just wanted to play with their friends, whether it was people they grew up with or people they knew from the beach. So were you already committed to Penn State when you were entering your 18-year year, or did that kind of just finalize it? Because it didn't sound like from Sarah that it was kind of like this this goal that they were going to be a powerhouse and win national championships. It sounded like people just wanted to be around their friends. Was that kind of your understanding when you joined that club as well so yeah i was committed to penn state in 16 you i believe like near the end so i've been committed to penn state for a while before i left and went to lee side and i think most of the girls were already committed by their 18 year who were on lee side and so i think that's why we worked so well together um at lee side because yeah we were all just girls who had played each other on the beach in an indoor for four plus years. And it was just like, we're already going somewhere. There's no pressure on someone to perform because, Oh, this coach is watching and I really want to go there. or Oh, I'm sitting on the bench, but like these other girls are getting recruited and it's not fair. And it was just like a good collective unit of people who knew what they wanted. And like they knew if they're going to go play like college ball afterwards and so it was just a really good group of girls who enjoyed the game. Like we had a lot of fun, but we also knew when it was time to be serious. And I think that was like the best way for me to end my OVA career. Now, looking back, is there any advice you can give some of our younger listeners? Because I'm sure a lot of them are fired up saying, okay, I've set my goal. I want to go to Penn State. And that's the be all end all. But let's be honest, extremely hard squad to make and not everybody's going to get that call. So when you set that as your goal, were you still entertaining conversations from other coaches? Did you have a list of schools or were you that was the, the only option you were looking at? Or how would you kind of advise a younger athlete to kind of all right, let's set an extremely high goal, but at, at the end of the day, we have to have a backup plan just in case, because like I said, it's extremely hard to get on that squad. So most definitely, I kept my options open. I talked to hundreds of coaches from all across the United States and Canada. I kept in contact with so many emails, sending them videos, sending them when my what my schedule was, when I was going to be at certain tournaments, and um, practice, film, everything. I was, as much as I could talk to coaches, I was respecting the NCAA recruiting rules and trying to, you know, have my name in somebody's brain because if they're thinking about me and that, you know, maybe they want me on their team. And so I was receiving letters, um, when I was in 15, like recruiting letters in 15, you know, but none of them were from Penn state. I actually never, ever received a, um, interest letter, like a, a recruiting letter from Penn State and so I went out on my own with my dad and my mom and made a recruiting video with all highlights and game film and sent it to schools that I was like I possibly want to go here you know not everything is going to come to me I need to go to them so I sent hopefully a well-worded uh, email to Russ Rose and the two assistant coaches at the time saying this is who I am this is what I can do and this is what I can bring to your program if you're interested, these are my tournament dates, and I hope to see you there. And um, it turns out that actually Russ Rose had already been at one of our tournaments and had seen me as he was recruiting another player who ended up going somewhere else. And one of my teammates at the time, Julia Adler, was like, oh, my goodness, it's Russ Rose. And I was like, 
I think I, I, I think I dropped dead right there. I was like, no way. And I didn't hear from him. So that's when I sent him the letter and he had seen me. So he sent, um, the assistant coach at the, or the, yeah, the assistant coach at the time, uh, Kalina Davidson to our court. And she was filming one of our tournament games in Dayton. And I don't remember the game because I think I was too focused on staring at Kalina because I was like, oh my goodness, she's filming the game. Is she filming us? Is she filming me? Is she filming the other team? Is she just standing here while she's on her phone? I don't know what's going on. And then um, they actually sent the other, they sent the associate head coach, Steve Eric, who's actually Canadian. Shout out. Love that man. (laughs) And uh, they sent him to one of our practices and he sat with Rob and Kevin and watched one of our practices. And again, don't remember that practice because I was freaking out. And then they all went to dinner together, but obviously I couldn't because, you know, that's recruiting rules that be totally uh, not allowed. And they told me the next day that Penn State was interested in me. And I think I cried for about 10 hours. And then uh, they emailed me saying that they wanted me to come on a visit, an unofficial visit. And then we set up, there's a, like Penn State holds a tournament every year called Happy Volley. And my team decided that we wanted to go to the tournament. And I was like, okay. So that's when I emailed them back and was like, well, we're coming here then. And they're like, yeah, we already have your visit already planned out. We talked to Kevin and Rob and this is your schedule for when you're coming here. Can your parents drive you this day so you can be here a day early and check out campus with us and everything? And I was like, my parents can't drive me. I will find a way to get there. <laughs> so my parents rearranged their schedules. We went to Penn State, got to walk around, um, meet with Kalina and everything. I mean, they were pretty busy with the tournament. So they drove us around in a, like, a little golf cart, and it was absolutely pouring rain so it was like i didn't really get to see much of campus because who wants to be out in the rain in april but yeah i got to see campus and i don't think i stopped smiling until i left like it was a four like a four days of continuous happiness and i was like that's it like this is i know i want to go here this is my home i left campus and coach was like call me tomorrow if you want to come here and i was like okay, that's it. And I called and he didn't even offer me like the way of like, do you want to come here? He just was like, well, what number do you want to be? And I was like, what? And he was just like, well, if you want to be on this team, you have to have a number. And I, was like, <laughs> and I just, I think I put the phone down and just started screaming. And that's when I like go to pick it back up. He goes, all right, I'm going to hand the phone off because I'm not really emotional like this. So he hands it to Kalina and Kalina was like, Oh my goodness. Congratulations. Like freaking out. So happy for me. I don't even think I ever ended up giving him what number I wanted to be because I was just like, I'm going to my dream school. I did what I said I would do. And I got here and I would just, I was so young that it was crazy to think that like, when I was 15 or 16 years old that I knew what I was going to be doing when I was 18, 19, 20, 20, you know, like I was just, I don't think I'm mentally prepared for that moment, but I would like to think that I was being helped by a lot of outside sources that allowed me to get there because there was definitely no way I could have done it on my own. Like 
Rob and Kevin at Defensa were extremely helpful. My parents were extremely helpful. There were so many people that helped me get to where I am now. And it's uh, amazing. And recruiting is so hard. That was the hardest experience of my life. I think I hated the recruiting process more than I hated doing all of my exams combined at Penn State. Is it just the the unknown of it? Because I think to to give our listeners perspective, when you go to some of those larger tournaments, there's, let's say, as many as 50, 60, 80 courts going on, a a bunch of talented girls. So for coaches to walk into that environment, it's got to be intimidating to find the athletes, right? So you mentioned you had eyes on and they watched probably one match at this tournament. So is it just the unknown or just that you're looking around other courts being like, oh, that athlete's really good or I wonder what they're thinking about that athlete? Like what was really the stressful? Is it just the sense of unknowing? I think so. I mean, I remember my, like, I remember walking into my first U.S. tournament. It was in, I want to say it was in Chicago, or it was, like, our first, like, big, like, large tournament. There was 150 courts, and the sound, first off, of the whistles was overwhelming because we'd only ever really been to tournaments where there was, like, four courts going on at a time. I was just like, this is insane. And there was so many people like looking like they had been knowing what they'd been doing for years because in the States, girls start playing volleyball like so much younger. Like most of my friends started when they were like eight or nine. And I was like, this is crazy. And like, I just had never experienced anything like it. And there was coaches everywhere, all seeming like everything, like knew what they were doing. And just, it's intimidating trying to sell yourself almost to a school, trying to convince them why you're the best option for them. And like, you're going to help their program more than thousands of other girls. I just, especially being Canadian and you know, there's so many girls in the United States. Like why would they want to take a Canadian person over an American? It's just, there's so many different factors that go into recruiting that I was just ridiculously intimidated. And I used to be extremely shy. I'm still pretty much like a shy person now. Like I had such a difficult time calling coaches and emailing coaches because I was just like, well, what if they don't want me? Like I, I guess I just feared rejection from them. And it was just such a difficult process for that to like get over that. If they email me back saying, Oh no, they don't want me. That's kind of heartbreaking, but it shouldn't be. It's just, there's so many other options. I mean, in the United States, in own division one volleyball, there's over 330 division one women's volleyball programs. And I know in Canada, there's hundreds and there's division two, II, division three, junior colleges, NAIA, there's everything. And so I shouldn't have been as nervous as I was, but you're also deciding where you want to go to school, which can really play a factor. Cause if you know, if you don't like the school pool, then what are you doing there? <laughs> you're just playing volleyball, but you're not having a good time. So there was also that factor. And yeah, I guess that was just the reason I, hated the recruiting process so much as there was just so many things that were up in the air and I didn't want to make the wrong choice and then regret it later on in life. Yeah, there's so many layers to this. You and I were talking before the show, we just had Kofi Jim on the show and he mentioned uh, a few coaches from, well, we'll just say it, from U Sports basically told him that he couldn't make the national team if he goes to the NCAA. And, and I wonder if you felt that too, because I had a little behind the scenes where we were at HBC one year and you had chosen to attend HBC, but you were actually going to turn down 
uh, the opportunity to go to National Team Challenge Cup if you were selected. And let's be honest, you were going to be selected. So I think you had Penn State commitments going into your, your summer there. So you weren't going to be a part of the National Team Challenge Cup tournament. So did you ever feel any pressure that if you wanted to play for Canada someday that you needed to go U Sports? Or did you know that you would get a look even if you went to the NCAA? So, yeah, I did HPC, but I had already previously committed to doing Juniata, um, which is, or Volleyball Express, which is a camp that Penn State runs. And it's like all of the recruits come, all of the players are there like from the actual team. And, you know, I had already committed to that like forever in a lifetime because that's just like everybody does it every summer. Um, and unfortunately it would have fallen at the same time. I can't be in two places at once. And so I wanted to get my name out there and I wanted to do HPC just so that somewhere down the line, maybe someone would remember who I was. And yeah, I was told by a lot of people that if I go NCAA, then I won't be able to return back and play for the national team. And I was like, well, I've seen a lot of girls play NCAA and then come back to Canada but I've also seen a lot of girls just forego playing for their national team and just play professional. And I was like, I know these girls want to be representing their country, but they just, they didn't feel welcomed. And I think that was just a lot with the coaches that were there at the time. And now there's been so many coaching changes since when I was, you know, 16 years old that now I've, I've definitely been talking to the coaches at team Canada and, they were like, no, NCAA is just is great. You know, they, I mean, Tom Black is an NCAA coach, so it's like he obviously doesn't think that. And there's just, there's just been so many changes with Team Canada, which are great changes. And I've seen the Team Ontario and the Team Canada program, like the junior program, grow so much. And I really, really wish I would have participated in those more. Just so, yeah, like, I would have been maybe more like in their mind when they were selecting players, but I've never tried out for team Canada. I've never done any sort of thing like that besides HPC when I was 16 or 17. And I do, I don't want to say I have regrets about not trying out for them more and pursuing it more. Cause I would have loved to represent my country. Um, I would have loved to have been doing that, but I knew that if I wanted to have the most successful career at Penn state that I did, that I needed to be committed to those things. And I mean, Penn State's produced so many amazing players that play for like the United States, like national team that I was just like, okay, if those girls can be doing that and like sticking with just training with Penn State and not play, training with team USA, like, well, why can't I just stick to training with Penn State and not play team Canada? So I do have some wishes that I would have participated more in the junior programs, um, especially if I was growing up now, I would definitely want to be in them. Those programs that they have being run right now are incredibly resourceful and useful. And I think that everything that team Canada and, you know, Ontario volleyball is doing is so great. Um, so it's great to see that change first off, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I would have done more, but so the next step in your process, you you arrive, you're at Penn State, and I mean, you're, you're stepping into an environment that has, what, seven national titles, 17 Big Ten championships. So when the recruiting phase was over, did the mood change? Because obviously now you're there to perform and you're there to help the team win. And you were, you were a redshirt your first year. So help us out with what was the first uh, 
preseason like? What were some of the first practices? What was the first time Russ gave you feedback or any of the other coaches gave you feedback? Just kind of let us in. Once the doors closed and you were there to work, what was the environment around the squad? So I got there. I left the day after I graduated from high school for Penn State. Um, we graduated on a Thursday, and I drove there on the Friday. Or sorry, graduated from high school. And so we started camp, or summer school. I, I enrolled in summer school, and we worked summer camps. And so we had, I want to say my first summer, we had about 10 camps that we would run for um, middle school and high school kids. And we would play during our lunch and dinner breaks. Like we would eat as fast as we could and then just like sprint back to the gym so we could play and get reps in. And it was like demonstrations for kids. We'd be doing that. And that was like my first experience playing with the girls. But also that like wasn't because it was so, it was basically like playing pickup volleyball, but you know, with some of the best players. And I just remember being so overwhelmed. Like I went in there think being so confident, like I'm going to be like a starting middle. And then I look across the net and there's Haley Washington and Ayanna Whitney. And these girls, you know, they played, they're like Haley's still with the national team. Like they've both been playing pro for so many years. And I also was only six, two and they were both over six, four. And I was like, Oh, okay. Well maybe this isn't, you know, my year and I trained extremely hard and I just it it like I wasn't physically or mentally ready I think maybe I was more close to being physically ready than I was mentally being ready I think I was just not very I want to say mature I don't want to say immature because I don't think I was immature but I don't think I was where I needed to be to compete with those girls because they had been doing it for so many more years than I had that they just knew the game. Like Haley is one of the smartest volleyball players I've ever met in my entire life. That girl is just incredible. And so I got to learn a lot from her, which is great. But my freshman year, there was so much to take in and you're as a girl, we play in the fall. And so I didn't have much time. That's why we come in early in the summer, but I was just getting my butt kicked every single day in the gym. I wasn't making the A side any better on B side. And so we had practice players who were boys who either didn't want to play on our men's team or had gotten cut from our men's team. And they were, or like coaches that were um, there that were like there to make our team better. And so they would play over me and I would have to do drills on the side on my nail to try to get better. And I didn't know for most of my first season if I was retching or not. I didn't I didn't get in a game. And then it was about the middle of October that we were just having an absolutely terrible game. And I had a pretty good warm up going into that game and coach looks at us from across the table in between the uh, second and third set and he goes, Am I gonna have to blow Tori's red shirt here because you guys can't perform right now? And I looked at him dead in the eyes and I didn't mean for this to come out, but I was like, Oh, so I am redshirting. And he was just like, well, obviously you haven't played. And I was just like, oh, okay. And he just kept going on like a tangent about how mad he was, about how bad we were playing. But I finally knew in my head that I was redshirting. And I was like, okay, good. I'm going to get to, you know, play another four years. And I've heard a lot of people talk down about redshirting. But I think it was the best 
experience of it. Like, I think it was the best option for me, especially like, I just, I wasn't where I thought I was compared to these girls. And I do think that red training is a very useful tool because there's just, you know, if you have an option to redshirt, like, why would you not, unless you're like a Catherine Plummer, who is an absolutely amazing athlete and tall and smart and just like such a good volleyball player. No, she's not somebody who needs to redshirt, but if there's someone like me who is not as dominant of a player, I would should use that tool to offer like a whole year to just sit back and watch and learn from the greats that are ahead of me. And I got to have a full year of seeing what Rec Hall has to offer, seeing what it is in the Big Ten and the NCAA, and learning to calm my nerves going into games and learning to take what coach says and, you know, only use the positives and the actual feedback and not like, oh, you're not doing well right now. Obviously, I know I'm not doing well right now, but he still says it because he needs to instill it in your head. And so I got to learn to take what everybody says and turn it into positive and like put it into a game. So I got a whole season of being able to learn about the game and using it to come for the next four, like the next four years. And it was a really great way for me to prepare for the rest of my collegiate career. And I think it really did pay off in the long run. I mean, yeah, I was at school for four and a half years, but I got a great education out of it. And I really enjoyed having four full years of playing. And who knows, maybe if I didn't redshirt my freshman year, I would have been like in and out of like playing. I wouldn't have been a starter and that would have maybe affected me a little bit differently. And so I think redshirting is a great tool. I mean, I know a lot of people frown down upon it, but I had a great experience with it. And if other people get redshirted, I don't think they should look at it as a negative thing. I think they should take it as like a learning process and they should use it to grow. And I, yeah, I just, I think that redshirting is not all that bad. Yeah. I hear rumblings of that all the time where people are, are almost dictating their recruiting process in youth sports by who's ahead of them, because there's almost this expectation to play their first year where looking at your stats, you came out of your red shirt year on fire and started in like your, your red shirt freshman year. So just to confirm for me and the listeners, red shirting just means you don't suit up during matches, right? So you're still lifting and practicing full time. Like there's no restriction on your NCAA hours, right? It's just the fact that you can't dress during a match. Um, I actually was able to dress during the matches. Um, but just like not step foot on the court. Um, like I was able to warm up before every game. I was able to be on the bench and everything. I mean, the only difference is like, I never got subbed in. <laughs> awesome. So you got the best seat in the house. So this is one question we usually ask the NCAA once, because I think the, the media blows this up where we had Autumn Bailey and Jen Cross in the show talk about how Michigan and Michigan state just flat out hate each other. Like even doesn't matter what <laughs> sport they're playing, they don't like each other. So when you're in your red shirt year, who was the most hostile to Penn state? Like who would be the women's volleyball team's rival in the big 10? That's well. I know for like football, we have the rival with like Ohio State. I want to say, but like with volleyball, um, I guess Nebraska. I wouldn't say there are. I mean, I think everybody in the Big Ten is our rivals. I just we want to beat everybody. There's nobody that we're like, oh, okay, we can go to this game and think it's easy and just you know kind of skate by with a win. We just we want to dominate every match, and that was always our mindset. 
But I, I think if we were to say anybody was our rival in the Big Ten, I would have to say Nebraska because they're such an amazing program. And, you know, I only beat them once in my college career, which was really unfortunate, but that's the way it goes. Um, and their crowd and their energy and their stadium is absolutely a madhouse. Like, I remember my first time watching us at Nebraska, like being redshirted and going to Nebraska. And I was like, oh my goodness, what did I get myself into? And then I remember my first time playing there. And I was like, how do people do this all the time? And I just, yeah, so I'd have to say Nebraska just because like they have the biggest crowd. They have the best energy. They're all in sync. They all know every cheer. Like that's sold out every game. And so I'd have to say that it'd be Nebraska, even though they're so far away in Nebraska and we were in Pennsylvania. But Nice, nice. So looking at the, the rest of your career, I'm very curious how Penn State manages kind of goal setting and expectations where, let's just say it, Russ Rose isn't a big uh, sunshine and unicorns type guy. He's not going to be <laughs> fluffy with the way he communicates, right? So when you get into your redshirt freshman year and you're contributing and, and you're getting the, the starting nod, how does Penn State manage that? Do you guys talk about national championship? Is it a process-driven school? Like, what is the the message to to this excellence? Because it, it seems like you guys have accomplished so much. I think the year before you got there, they won an NCAA championship, and obviously you made a, an NCAA Final Four. So obviously the, the team was doing well. So what is the message of practice or seasonal planning or in these meetings? Give us the, the behind-the-scenes about how they talk about excellence there. Um. So, yeah, they were back-to-back national championships before I got there. So they won in 2013 and 2014. And just every year, the same like the mindset's the same. Won a national championship. The first words that coach says at the beginning of every first meeting is, we're here to win a national championship. We're not there for anything else. We're not planning for what's after school. or we don't. He doesn't even like <laughs> when we're in practice. If he looks at us, and he thinks that we're not focused, he'll be like, oh, are you thinking about your next meal or what you're getting after practice? And I'm just like, no, trying to, try to think about a national championship. You know, he, he like wants you on the same, he wants everybody on the same track. He just wants everybody to be on the same page. And the page is winning a national championship. That is the be all and end all goal. We go into every lift with, this lift is going to help us win a national championship. We're supposed to go into every practice with the mindset of, we need to play as hard as we would if we were in the national championship game. And it's as simple as that coach instills that in you from the moment he meets you. It's just at the bottom of it, you know, it's just at the end of the day, I think everybody's goal should be to win whatever they want to win. I mean, we have a picnic at the beginning of every season with our boosters and our boosters are people who donate and come to every game and, you know, support the program. And we go up on a stage and we introduce ourselves every year and we say who we are and, you know, what we want to do in school and what our goals are for the year. And everybody goes up there with, want to win a national championship. But, you know, after a while, it gets a little tiring for 20 some odd of us saying we want to win a national championship. So we throw in other goals in there. Like we want to go undefeated at home. We want to win the Big Ten Championship. And there's never individual goals. I've never heard somebody go up on that stage and say, I want to be the Big Ten Player of the Year or I want to be the Big Ten Defensive Specialist. You know, there's just, there's nothing like that. There's no individual 
goal mindsets, everything is I want to win a national championship as a team. And it's not for like individual benefit either. I never heard Megan Courtney go out there and be like, Oh, I want to win a national championship because I want to be the team USA libero. Like, no, she's not like that. She is like the team player. She wants to be the most hardcore person she can be on the court because it will help her team win a national championship. And she accomplished that. And that was something that I really respected about her. Um, and like all the players that have gone through Penn state, I mean, everybody, I think that's why coach recruits the way he does and the players that he does. Cause he wants people that are like-minded. Now, did you find it was, it was freeing and it helped you stay connected to the goal by saying this? Because as I'm listening to this, it sounds awesome and inspiring, but at the same time coming up through the Canadian system, it doesn't feel very Canadian to say we're going to win a national championship every day. Right. So were you comfortable with the fact that everything you do, whether it was eating dinner or lifting weights or watching video, like we're doing this so we can win a national championship. Did you connect to that right away or did you struggle with just, it's just not something we do back home, I guess. I think I might have struggled with it. Looking back, I want to say that I didn't because I think I was always fully like engaged in that winning mindset. But I know I can be passive at times and say, oh, it's okay, we didn't win. And, you know, I, I have to act like that now because I'm done and there's nothing I can change about my career. But, I yeah, I definitely think it was a little bit of an adjustment. But I just had girls that were older than me that were so, like, they were so in it. Like, they were bought in, and they exuded that Penn State winning mentality onto me that I was like, I'm all in. I want to win at all times. And I, like, we'd be doing drills, and, like, especially freshman year when I knew I wasn't on A-side, and I was trying to compete to get on that A-side, even though I know I wasn't going to get there. There was the starting seven, and... I just, I wanted B-side to kick the crap out of A-side because I was like, I want to win. And it was really hard when we wouldn't win. But there were some drills where B-side was supposed to win. Like, he was supposed to make it hard on A-side because they need to learn what it's like to lose. Because you don't win every game. It just doesn't happen. Like, losses happen. That's part of sports. Every, somebody has to lose a game. And I just, yeah, I think that mentality going into it is you want to win everything, but you have to look at it in hindsight and be like, okay, I lost. It happens. I have to get over it so I can be prepared to win the next game. Now looking at the big 10, obviously like, like you mentioned, every game is competitive and you went to the tournament every year of your career. So as you're going through these tough matches, how did you prepare for them? Is there any advice you'd give to some of our younger listeners that, like you said, you're going into Nebraska or maybe at home your gym is packed or maybe you're in the Final Four and they're, they've, they're in an NBA stadium and it's packed? Like, How do you stay committed to your goals and whatever the game plan is when there's thousands of people yelling at you and all of a sudden you're on TV and there's, there's more distractions added to it? So I really enjoy routine. No matter where I am, no matter what I'm doing, um, going into a game, I need the same routine leading up to it. I just, yeah, like if I'm away, if I'm home, I if I'm going into practice, I need a routine. And I don't like being rushed. I don't, and it doesn't have to be like an hour-long routine. It doesn't have to be, you know, anything extensive. It can just be like a few short breaths even before you're going into it. But yeah, I definitely had a set routine going into every game, every practice. And it was just setting for practices. I would set 
a goal I wanted a lot to achieve in that practice. And then if I wasn't achieving that goal halfway through practice, I would like try to refocus and we'd go over the water cooler and I would like think to myself and be like, okay, maybe I can achieve this goal right now, but what is the best way that I can try to be my best? And I just, you know, some days you can't always bring your A game and you're not going to have the best practice of the best game of your life. And I think that's okay, but you have to be at least giving your all to try to be your best. And I think if you go into every game with that mindset and you block out the crowd and you block out everything that's going on besides the game, I think you'll be good because at the end of the day, you don't want to be, you know, remorseful or regretful or mad at yourself because you didn't give it your all when you could have when you're on the court. Like, you can't take things back. And I just think that that's, like, the way that most players need to go into games. And I know that's really hard. I mean, I struggled with it. There's so many games that I have regrets on things I didn't do. But I just think that if you prepare yourself, like, if you're preparing to win, then you might win and you'll be happy. (laughs) So don't prepare to do anything else because then you'll just be upset. I don't know. I don't, yeah. (laughs) I don't know if my advice is very good, but I think just mental toughness is the thing that people need to focus more on because physical toughness can come with age and so can mental toughness. But like if you're going into, if you're preparing for games, prepare the same way you would for your final game. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for that. So let's get into the details a little bit of your preparation. So obviously playing in an extremely competitive conference, you're going to the tournament. How are you working as a middle? So you mentioned in club, they introduced some iWork stuff. Like what goes into a game plan? Because fans of the NCAA will know their sub rules are a little bit different than international volleyball, where you might have to scout two different setters and two different right sides just because the amount of subbing that some teams will do. So are you watching a lot of video? Are coaches supporting you? Like, how much of a plan do you go into a match? Because, like, the step around in the NCAA is big time. Like, those girls are going to the national team, and once they're done, when you get, like, that big-time matchup, right? So how are you competing with the speed of the game, the, the level of game planning, like, everything that goes into winning an NCAA match? Everything that goes into an NCAA match, it all starts with sleeping, eating, and hydrating. That's what our strength and conditioning coach told us. You cannot play the best game of your life if you are sleep deprived if you are hungry or if you're thirsty like you need to prepare outside of the game before you can even think about winning one of those matches and so that was a big thing that we would do and then we would watch a ridiculous amount of video and we would do film video you can watch on your own we would have two different ways of watching through different apps and whatnot um and so you could watch like the volley, we could watch the volumetrics um, way of the game, which is just like it's an app where you can code and you can see every little detail of every single game. So you can like type in player number 16 and them hitting, and it'll come up with all of their hits from like, you know, the, either that game, that season, their entire career. And then you can also go and watch live game film. Um, so you can see repetitive hitting in volumetrics or you can go on youtube and find their last games you know something like that and watch the entire match and see what they're doing you know in between plays to see if they're actually engaged fully in the play if they're covering if they're blocking if they're you know just different things and so you can do that on your own um and that's a really good way of like 
like your mental toughness in the game and you're just like seeing you're like anticipating what the other team can do if you're watching that film but then going in with a coach especially at Penn State a coaches who have been doing this for so many years and like this is their job is to know what the other team is doing um so we would watch a lot of film with them and they would go into full details of look if they kick their foot up like this they're roll shotting the ball or if they fling their hands this way, they're setting the ball backwards and stuff like that. And so we would watch a lot of film with coaches and we would do either individual sessions or all the middles would go in together. All the outsides would go in together, stuff like that. And then the day before a match, we would watch film on them. And then the morning of the game, we would watch um, film on the other team. And then about 15 minutes before coach would go over the scouting report again on what we're supposed to be doing in the match on and what they're doing too so he would write and this man is an absolute genius so coach rose has kept every single scouting report that he's ever made probably from like the starting of time which was a long time ago 40 (laughs) some odd years ago and he writes them all by hand and he photocopies them and gives you a copy and you read that copy and you know it like the back of your hands because if you don't, it'll show in your gameplay and he'll know that you don't know the scouting report and he will call you out for it. And so I still have every single scouting report that he's ever given me starting all the way back in 2015 because I was too scared to first off to throw them away because I knew that he would get mad if he found them because he doesn't like throwing things away. Yeah, just scouting his scouting reports were so detailed and i remember like when i went on the big 10 tour um he made me write a scouting report on the girls that i went with because they're all girls that we were going to play in the big 10 like in the next coming season he wanted a full detailed report of every single one of these girls and what their tendencies are and what they do when they play and how they're different from when they're with this setter versus this setter and so scouting can get really nitty and gritty but like watching film if you don't have, like, if somebody, like, is a high school player, like, a club player, and they don't have, like, somebody writing a full detailed report for them, even just sitting and watching other teams and just picking up what these players are doing can be helpful. Like, if you're about to play another team and you know you're about to play them, instead of, you know, sitting in the hallway with your friends, sit in the gym with your friends and sit and watch the other team. It's a really great way to prepare for your next match because what if you see something that the outside does and they you know, they do a certain footwork and it means that they're going to hit the ball line or if they're going to hit the ball cross. And that's just a really good way to get started and watching film. Cause once you go to play school and or to play volleyball in university or in NCAA anywhere, you're going to be watching film and you're going to be doing scouting reports and you'll be ahead of the game if you do it while you're still in club. Now, is there a way that you found a way to like boil down all the information? Because I think it's amazing that you have access to everything. But I'm wondering when you're just getting onto the court, so you're in rotation four, are you honestly looking at the setter's left foot? Or is there some key points that you kind of look for in like big chunks? Because I'm wondering how much uh, like younger athletes, when they're just starting, they're probably not going to be able to retain as much information as you are. So what are kind of like the big chunks that you look for first? And then you can start looking for details about what if they stutter stepped on their approach or if they did this or if the ball's in front of them, like those big things. But what would be the main things when you started this process that you kind of grasped to? So I think I guess the easiest way to for me was when I was a blocker, I would watch um, 
well, first off, the trajectory of the ball, like, if the setter is setting it, you know, inside or outside, so if it's going to be harder for the hitter to hit line or cross, like, she's going to be able to, it's going to be almost be determined on where she's going to be hitting it, depending on where the setter sets it. Um, so I think that's, like, the main thing that blockers would need to work on is just, like, reading the height and the, like, the actual position of the ball. So if the setter sets it inside, the hitter's more likely to go cross because that's where their footwork is going to be taking them. But if the setter sets it out really far, like, they're gonna, like their shoulders are going to be lined up to go line. Or if it's just, like, you know, an absolute trash set, then they're just going to have to tip it or set it over, and that's something you don't need to block necessarily. You need to be ready to play defense. And so I think with blocking, that's definitely, like, the easiest way is just determining where you think the set is going and, like, in your head being like, okay, what is the possibility, like, what are the possibilities of them being able to hit cross or line? Like, what is the most, like, what is the easiest way for them to score? And then being able to take that away. As a hitter, I mean, I don't really know how to read the block besides keeping your eyes open and <laughs> seeing where their hands are and hopefully being able to see the defenders. I mean, when you watch film, you'll see defenders, um, their tendencies, if they like stand more shallow or deeper. And that's when, you know, if you have to tip short or if you have to, you know, roll shot deep line, but just, yeah, if you're like doing it in big chunks, I'm obvi- I don't really play defense that much. Um, so I don't really have any <laughs> tips for that besides, you know, hustle to the ball. But yeah, I guess reading is just a lot. It's just, I sequence and you want to watch the game, even if you slow it down and have it in slow-mo in your head, like watching the game and film, I think is the best way for you to speed it up in real life. And so if you're, you know, younger and not able to do that as much, just sitting and watching live game or go on YouTube and you can watch professional setters, like old game tape of team Canada. Like I've done that a million times and watched old team Canada game tape. It's just, yeah, like mental, like just seeing it and trying to apply it. And if you guess wrong, you guess wrong. That's okay. <laughs> but just at least trying to watch film is better than nothing. And what and is your what is your Sorry. eye sequence? Would you be comfortable sharing that? Like, are you like a ball setter, ball hitter person? Are you picking up the hitter earlier because the middles are so fast at your level? Like what, when you say eye sequencing, if you don't mind just sharing kind of what are the steps you take? Are you looking at the setter longer? Like what are the little tricks you've developed? So yeah, definitely ball hitter, ball setter, uh, ball hitter again. And I just, so you see if your team is serving, say, and you're, going to block so you're the ball goes over the net the passer's passing it either it's a good pass it's a bad pass it's an okay pass you know there's like the number scales everybody does it differently but then you also have to notice if it's off the net on the net or over the net um because if it's you know over then you don't really have to do much blocking um and so say it's a great pass then there's two or three or four options for the setter if you're younger, typically there's two. If you're older, there's four with, you know, a back row option. And so just reading, like, what is the best option? And there's definitely, especially um, if there's, like, a hot hitter. So if somebody's been killing it that game and the setter keeps going to them, then there's a higher possibility that it's going to them. 
I also just, I think my small trick on is not losing your player because in the middle you can run so many different things and it, as a hitter, it's great. As a blocker, it's annoying. And so I would always step to wherever my hitter is going. And so if I see them move, you know, further from the middle of the court and they're going to like the 31 zone, I would slide over with them and like put my hand like almost like in front of their face. Like I just say, if like my arm kept extending through the net, like my hand would be in their face because I don't want to lose them. And so when I was in middle, I would do that a lot. And you would just see me tracking along wherever they went. And if they ran trick plays, they might get by me. It happens. But next time I'm going to know, okay, they have that in their belt and I'm going to have to follow them better. I'm going to have to just track them down and do the best that I can to see if it's a good pass. Then, okay, they can be an option. If it's a bad pass, they're less likely to be an option. And um, one of my coaches, um, Dennis Hohenschel, said if it's a bad pass, I think it's like 70% likely to go to the outside, probably even higher than that. I would just slide over to the outside so I don't have to make as big of a block move. You know, trying to simplify the game for yourself is giving yourself the best chance to win. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all these details. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask just about your university career was you had the challenge to change position later on in your career. So I'm, I'm guessing with all this access to video and feedback that maybe made the transition easier or how did you find this new position? Because I'm thinking back to your club days, I think you were a middle all the way up. So how did you make the change to an outside hitter in your last year? Briefly at Defensa, I tried outside and right side just because we had like four really incredible middles, but turned out I was just not that great back then at outside. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what it was. So anyways, yes, I was a middle all the way up until my senior year. But luckily, the OVA offers a beach program. And so I had always trained with passing and hitting on the outside and on the right side. And so after my um, redshirt junior year, I didn't play that much, actually. I came off the bench for the tournament because one of the middles got injured. But there was two freshman middles that... I'm not going to lie, we're extremely athletic and we're starting over me. And I, for lack of better words, threw myself a pity party and didn't play that much uh, my redshirt junior year. And so I went to coach and was like, I'm not happy. I'm not playing. And that's not something I'm accustomed to. And it's not, I'm not comfortable with just sitting on the bench anymore. I know I was like, I know I can help this team in other ways. I was like, I see that we're lacking outsides for next year. Can I train to be an outside? And this was like right after the season happened. And he was like, you want to help this team in the way you can? And yeah, I'm going to let you train as an outside or a right side. I was like, cool. So that entire spring I trained as an outside and it was extremely hard. I was not prepared to wait as long as I had to for the ball. I kept being early to everything because from middle, you're supposed to be, you know, up in the air when the setter has the ball in their hands. And as an outside, that is definitely not the case. And so I was not very good at that. I think that was like the biggest adjustment for me. It was just like waiting. So I'm not a very patient person. <laughs> but I just, I knew that I wanted to help my team have the best chance of success. And so I was like, all right, it's time for me to change positions. And one of my coaches had been trying to make me change positions since he got there, which was my sophomore year or 
redshirt freshman year. And I was just like, stubborn. No, I'm a middle. I've been a middle. I don't want to change. And even my boyfriend, he like helped work with the team and he was like, change to be a right side. Like get out of the middle. And I was just like, no, I'm a middle. But anyways, when the time came and the opportunity rose, I was like, all right, I'll change to be an outside. And I think with all my OVA beach experience that the, the difficult, like the change wasn't that difficult. Um, but that's also because we had a team full of amazing DSs. Like we had Keaton Holcomb, Jenna Hampton, uh, Emily Shora, Christy Carlos, and then of course, Kendall White, who's just an amazing libero and can pass the entire court if she was asked of. And so I did not have to pass that much. And it made it a lot easier for me to change because being a middle, you don't get to pass much. And so originally I switched and I was at right side, but our former right side, Johnny Parker was playing outside and she was like, I'm kind of struggling. I would like to go to right side. And I was like, honestly, I trained as an outside all spring. I'd love to go to an outside. So we switched positions and that's when we started doing a lot better in the season and we started getting in a better flow and rhythm. And I think People shouldn't be limited to one position. I have a lot of younger girls message me and be like, oh, well, my coach says I should be a libero because I'm not that tall. Or, oh, I'm a middle because I am really tall. And I'm just like, try every position because there is no harm in being a utility player. And having skills in every position, in my opinion, makes you more like recruitable and more valuable because you have multiple skills say you're on the bench and your outside goes down. Okay. Then your third, your other outside goes in. What if they're not playing very well? Well, then you're in the next option to go in. And what if you do really well and you perform and that's your new position? It's just, there's no harm in cross training in volleyball. There, like there's endless possibilities. If you know how to set, hit, play defense, serve everything. And so I just think, that when I change positions, I did it for the sake of my team, but players when they're young should do it for the sake of themselves. Now you've been so great about sharing details and really let us into like what goes into your mindset and everything that went into your career at the university level. I was wondering if we could just circle back to that pity party uh, comment. At, at what point did you realize that, okay, I'm unhappy, but how can I still help the team? Like, did it start off as like, oh, what was me, I'm not starting, and you had like a little bit of a bitter phase? Or was your mind always, okay, they beat me out, but I'm still going to go to practice and work my tail off. I'm still going to make the team better. Like, where was the balance that you're upset that you're not starting and that was taken away from you, but you can still do something else to be better? So that was definitely instilled in me freshman year when I didn't play was, okay, what can I do to make the team better? And if it was me not playing that freshman year that made the team better, I was like, okay, then so be it. I want this team to have the best chance at winning. So when I got my starting position taken, I definitely was a little bit pouty, I would say, for a couple weeks. And then one of my assistant coaches was like, look, you look upset. You look like you don't want to be here. Like, what is wrong? Like, I know you're not playing, but you're still a part of this team. And you're, like, you know, you're here every day at practice making these girls better. Like, you're putting in what you're supposed to. And I was like, okay, but I'm not playing. And he was like, well, that's on you. Like you need to get better. And so I definitely was 
a little bit sour for a couple weeks. And then I was like, okay, if I'm not playing, I need to be making these two girls better. And every day we would go and do middle training and every piece of advice that I could give them to try to help them, I would. I was like, oh, your footwork needs to be doing this. Because like, it's just such a small change that I was like, this will actually really help you. And they were like, wow, that is so helpful. Thank you. Or sometimes they'd be like, shut up, Tori. And I'd be like, okay, you're right. <laughs> but there was this one woman that came in. She was a former player. And she was like, just this awesome girl. And I was like, wow, she's really cool. And then when she left, coach was like, oh, yeah, she was a starter for three years. And then these freshmen came in and beat her out. And she knew that her role and her time of starting was over. And so she tried to help them be the best players. And they became two like, um, of the best medals at Team USA. And I was like, well, maybe I could be that role. But then I just wasn't happy with that. And so I started working really, 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 really hard because coach was like, what if one of them gets injured and you've been throwing yourself a pity party and then you suck and then we lose? And I'm like, well, okay, that can't happen. So I was working really hard in the gym and then, you know, one of them did get injured and I got to go in and I had some of the best highlights of my career in the NCAA tournament because I stopped being sad that I wasn't starting. When I was finally given my opportunity, I made the best of it. And I just think that, yeah, I was unfortunate that I wasn't starting, but everything happens for a reason. And that just showed me that I can be a better person and help the team even when I'm not starting. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for sharing as many details as you have. But the last thing I just wanted to check on was it sounds like because you were doing summer school and you had your academics taken care of that as soon as you graduated, you were able to play professional volleyball this year. So how did that come apart where you were able to hire an agent? Because I'm just curious about the NCAA rules and you hear all the time about the horror stories that as soon as you hire an agent, you lose your eligibility. So at what point could you talk to them? And then at what point did you get the offer to go to Puerto Rico to, to go join a club team? Um, so yeah, so with getting an agent, it is the moment you like you're done your NCAA career. So as soon as you play your last game, agents are allowed to reach out to you. You can reach out to them. You can sign a contract. You can do whatever. But before that, big no no. You can lose your eligibility, and that would be an absolute nightmare for anybody. And so the moment we lost to Stanford. I tried my best to recuperate and, you know, get it out of my mind that my NCAA career was over because that was, you know, something I'd been looking forward to. Like, my entire life was doing my NCAA career. And then for it to just be over, I, you know, nobody can be ready for that. But one of my um, assistant coaches came up to me and was like, there's this agent that represents Haley Washington, Simone Lee, Micah Hancock, Megan Courtney, you know, like just most of the Penn State grades. And I was just like, okay, I'd love to be in contact with him. And I had quite a few agents reach out and friends reach out that had agents that were like, amazing career, congratulations. Would you like to be represented by us? And I knew I needed more time than that to figure out what I wanted to do and like figure out who I wanted to be represented by. Um, and so I messaged back a lot of people and all of them being like, thank you, thank you. But I'm going to take some time to figure out like, what I want to do and who I want to go with. And so I waited till after I actually graduated, which was a week later after I finished my volleyball career. 
I walked through graduation and then I was like, okay, now school is officially over. Like that chapter of my life is flip the page. It's done. I can focus on professional volleyball. And so I talked to quite a few people and tried to figure out who I thought would be the best for me. And I went in and talked to Russ and he was like, yeah, the, the person I would recommend the most is this guy. He's from Italy. You know, he's been around for quite a while. He knows the leagues he represents, the girls I just mentioned, because he is one of the top um, agents. And he started an agency and then combined it with, like, four other agencies. So they cover, like, most of Europe and Asia and you know, cover most of the world, basically. And so I was like, okay, well, if they're going to give me the best opportunity. But then, you know... It's in the middle of the season. So we finished league volleyball in December and professional volleyball starts in September and goes to May. So they're in the middle of the season. So it's not like obviously the top players are getting recruited and going, but I knew that I wanted to find like a better contract. So I was given a couple offers to different places and uh, overseas, but I was just like, these don't seem like the best opportunities for me to create, like continue my uh, volleyball career. So I was like, okay, like, you know, I'll wait a little bit. And then Russ actually had a guy contact me from Puerto Rico that Puerto Rico kind of does it differently too. They don't really have like set agents. And so they have people that like talk and are like a connection between you and the team, but they don't take any of your money. So with an agent, usually they take anywhere from like five to 15%. I don't really know. That could be totally wrong numbers, but most of the agents <laughs> I talked to were like around there. And so they don't take any percentage of your salary. They get paid directly from the Puerto Rican teams. Um, and so this guy was like, Oh, I have a couple teams that are interested in you. Would you be interested in coming to Puerto Rico? Like send me film, send me your information. And so that started with that guy. And I messaged my agent. He was like, no, you totally need to do like what you need to do. Like get your first season over there, you know, get playing. Cause like we, he's like, we're still not finding many offers here in Europe. And I was like, okay, sounds good. So got to Puerto Rico, had still been waiting on the visa and everything. I was there for exactly a month. I left February 17th and came home March 17th because of the coronavirus. And got a lot of great experience in, um, but I never actually played in a match. So I never have actually started my professional career because with everything that was going on, Homeland Security in the United States was not really accepting visas. Um, and so my visa application process ended up getting denied, but I'd already been, I was already back home by the time it got denied due to the coronavirus. So kind of started my professional career because, you know, I was at every workout, every, practice in every game but I never actually got to step foot on the court so it's almost like I redshirted when I went to Puerto <laughs> Rico but it was a really great experience I love Puerto Rico I would recommend anybody if they wanted to go there and start their professional career there because like they were so accepting and they train really hard and it's just it's a different experience than Europe is for sure like most of the girls that I know that have done both are like it's really different but it's also a great start and like introduction to professional volleyball and how did you find the off-court stuff? Like, were you one of the only foreigners on that team? Was there an interesting vibe joining them at that point of the season? Like, how were the the little details outside of volleyball to get used to? Okay, so I think I was there like a week and a half after the season started because Puerto Rico starts, typically, they start in 
January, but they had had the hurricane a couple of years ago. So this was their second year starting the league back up. And this was their first year allowing foreigners again, which foreigners being, you know, anybody who's not American or Puerto Rican. And so I was there like a week and a half and there was one other American on the team and we lived together. So that was great. And then actually the setter of the team was my best friend from freshman and sophomore year who I attended Penn State with, um, Wilma Rivera. So I got really lucky and I had my best friend on the team and then now a very close friend who I got to hang out with every single day. And these girls were so accepting and a lot of them had played NCAA and some of them had played professional overseas otherwise, like Ari Cruz, she was on the team and she's like, you know, one of the best Puerto Rican players to like ever exist. And the, the head coach, I feel like I'm not going to say her name right, but Siomara. And she was the setter for the Puerto Rican national team forever and such an amazing professional player. And so they helped me connect with the team so quickly. And I was even some girls that did not speak English, but they would try so hard. I would try my best to speak my, you know, first level Spanish to them. <laughs> and it was great because these girls wanted to be teammates and they wanted to communicate and be friends and have the best experience. They wanted to win, but they also knew that it was important to create these off-court connections. Awesome. Awesome. Sounds like a great opportunity. I'm sorry you got cut short, but uh, I mean, we're all kind of dealing with it, but (laughs) exactly. You know, it happens. Well, it doesn't really, but you know, (laughs) (laughs) awesome. So, uh, I can't thank you enough for all the details you shared and it's great learning the behind the scenes because I think a lot of people were watching as a fan and it was easy to follow because you're at such a high level, but to hear the details was awesome. A little sensitive of how much we've kept you because uh, this has gone a little bit longer than we usually like to do, but one thing we're trying to make a tradition is just to end every episode with a funny story. So here you are playing at a super high level. You've won a Big Ten. You've been to the NCAA Final Four. You're, You're an OBA champion. But some funny stuff still happens along the way. So I was wondering if you had a funny story you could leave me and the listeners uh, before we let you go. I thought long and hard about this because there has been a lot of hilarious moments in my NCAA career and like on and off the court. But one of my favorite on-court memories was our second last game. We were playing Cincinnati. And for some reason... In the last, like, seven games, I haven't recorded a single dig. And I, I know I only play front row, but I didn't have, like, not even, like, take an overpass, like, nothing. And Coach had pointed it out to me, being like, you know, you're going into this game, like, seven games in a row with no digs. And I was like, seriously? He was like, yeah. Like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, don't worry, don't worry, I'll get one. And it's in the fourth set that I finally get my first dig. And it's at right at the end of the game, like, right at the end of the fourth set. And the camera, like, pans in on me, and Coach is like, Tori, Tori. And I'm like, oh. And I, like, run over to him, and he, like, hi- I go to high-five him, which is weird because high-fives rarely happen with Russ Rose. Anyways, <laughs> he sticks his hand up for a high-five, and I'm like, oh. And I go to high-five him, and he goes, you just recorded your first day. Congrats. And I literally burst out laughing, but the camera, like, pans in and, like, zooms in on us. And it's him laughing and me laughing, and I was like, this is the greatest moment of my life. Like, me and Coach laughing, and then I go and, like, watch it back on video, and I'm like, oh, my God. This is the greatest moment, and it's hilarious. It's just, he was like, you just finally recorded a date, your first date in seven games. How does it feel? And I was like, actually terrible, because now he pointed it out. (laughs) But it was great. I just, 
I love that clip. I have it saved on my phone. It is absolutely hilarious. And I love that man because he just made my career so special. Awesome. Yeah. Before we wrap it up, I was wondering if you could just describe to us, because I think the, how the media portrays him is this, you know, straight shooter, doesn't sugarcoat anything like pretty harsh, but it sounds like he has a lot of trust and builds a lot of great relationships. So how does he walk that line where he's going to call you out if you're not doing your job, but you know, he cares at the end of the day. Like how does, how did he accomplish that with you and all the other athletes he's coached? I, okay. So the media portrays him definitely. He is what it is. Like he is the goat. Like he is the greatest, but he is also a softie and it took me a long freaking time to figure that out. But that man is great. He tells us from the moment you meet him, like in our first meeting, like right before preseason, we have meetings and he goes, if you're ever in trouble, doesn't matter what time of the day, what time of the night, I will be there for you. He, he, cause he knows we're away from our families and it's hard being a college kid and growing and you know, he just, he wants to be there for you and he wants to build that trust and relationship and he's not going to judge you if you mess up. And he really tries to help you in every situation. I've seen like girls get into trouble and him just do his absolute best to help them, you know, get back on the right track. And he is, he, he lets you know that he is there for you because that's the kind of coach he wants to be. He wants to be that, you know, you mess up. He's going to let you know you messed up. But if you do something good, every once in a while, you get a little head nod and a smile. And it's like, wow, this man is what I want as a coach. It's just the way he is, the way he acts, everything he does and everything he has done is just like, you know who he is and there's no hiding behind anything. And he is, he's just, he straight up is like, he wants to be how he is. And he does that. He doesn't change who he is around anyone. It's great. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks again. This was, this was great. You were, you were obviously requested by a lot of our listeners and it was great to have you open up and share as many details as you did. So thanks again for taking the time. This is definitely a good one and, you know, good luck with the rest of your pro career. We'll see how that pursues once everything's back and running, but uh, thanks for taking the time today. Yeah. Sorry. I took so much of your time. I, Apparently really like to talk. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. For somebody who's shy, I don't know if this podcast thing was going to work out, but you did talk about yourself for about an hour 20. So that, that's a win for us. Thanks oh, for doing that. <laughs> oh goodness. That is a lot. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Tori.